Today's scripture reading is from Joshua 23. And in your pew Bibles, it's on page 168. So if you open with me to Joshua chapter 23, we'll read the chapter from there. Joshua 23. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with those na- these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the, the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. May God bless the reading of his word. my apartment. Wow. Is that the kind of nagging I can expect now that you're my girlfriend? (laughs) Good thing I drew this up. What's that? I present to you the relationship agreement. (laughs) 
A binding covenant that in its 31 pages enumerates, iterates, and codifies the rights and responsibilities of Sheldon Lee Cooper, here and after known as The Boyfriend, and Amy Farrah Fowler, here and after known as The Girlfriend. It's so romantic. Mutual indemnification always is. Why don't you start perusing while I set up my notary stamp? Section 5, hand-holding. Hand-holding is only allowed under the following circumstances. A, either party is in danger of falling off a cliff, precipice, or ledge. B, either party is deserving of a hearty handshake after winning a Nobel Prize. C, moral support during flu shots. Seems a bit restrictive. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to retain a lawyer. Morning. <laughs> I was reading an article recently that talked about this latest trend in wedding planning. The latest trend being these lifestyle clauses or these love contracts. Much like what you just saw between Sheldon and Amy in The Big Bang Theory. And these contracts can get pretty specific. You know, they talk about some of them have this weight requirement where the husband and the wife is required to maintain a certain weight. You know, husband and wife can't gain or lose X number of pounds. And some, of, some of the contracts have uh, binding clauses about whether or not in-laws can vacation with them. You know, yeah, some of you may like that. It's popular among the celebrities as well. You know, Jessica Biel and Justin Timberlake have this infidelity clause where if JT cheats on Jessica Biel, Jessica is awarded $500,000. Now, you know, personally it seems a little bit small compared to what JT makes and a small price that you would pay for a faithful marriage, but we won't go down that route. As for Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg, I know even back when they were dating, Priscilla required Mark to spend at least one night together, one date night together per week, and at least 100 minutes of quality time per week. Now these types of love contracts, these types of lifestyle clauses, it's very easy to perceive God's relationship with Israel as some sort of contract when it's not. And the type of love contract that we see in our culture today, it's, it's unlike the types of weddings that have been popping up in my Facebook newsfeed over these past couple of weeks. You know, after almost every Saturday, my newsfeed would pop up with photos of someone I knew that got married. You know, granted, I did go to a Christian college and it is wedding season. But these types of relationships, you know, of my friends, of these people who've gone to Christian colleges or, or whatever, they, they remind me of, of how their relationships started and how they differ from these types of love contracts. You see, when you first begin dating, you're infatuated with a person. You strongly like them or, or you strongly love them. And as you progress in your relationship, you learn more about each other. You figure out what pleases them. And so you learn about you know, what types of movies they like, what types of food they like. You know, if they don't like horror movies, you make a mental note to yourself not to bring them to the, to the latest Saw movie or to the movie theater around Halloween time. My point is to say that you know, when you're infatuated with this person, when you love them, you do these things to please them, and your motivation is out of love. And hopefully not out of fear, not because you're, you're scared of your husband or wife or you're scared of your girlfriend or boyfriend. 
And hopefully not entirely out of obligation, as if you're just obeying the terms of the contracts, as if to say, you know, I have to do this, I have to do this, do this for her, and not any bit of, I want to do this. Now, this is important in any type of relationship. But there's been this cultural shift in how we view marriage and love today that negatively colors how we approach the scriptures today and how we read the scriptures, especially a passage like the one we have before us today. It's very easy to, to see God's relationship with Israel in Joshua 23 as some sort of love contract, as if there's no relationship at all, as if the obedience is done merely because of the terms of the contract, the obedience that Joshua is calling them towards, and not because of any close and loving relationship that Israel has with God. So let's take a look at the passage. If you turn with me to Joshua 23. Now it begins here in Joshua 1 to 2. And Joshua is summoning the representatives of Israel because he has a few words to depart to them before he dies. And he says to them in verses 3 to 5, what we have here is this very interesting format where Joshua is alternating between a reminder of what God has done, a reminder of the grace that God has shown to Israel, not because of anything that Israel has done to deserve it. And he alternates between that and then an exhortation for Israel to respond, to reciprocate that grace, to love God, to be faithful, to obey. And so the first reminder here is in 3 to 5, and it says, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the lands of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way, and he will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, as the Lord your God promised you. So here Joshua is emphasizing the fact that, that God is fighting for them, that God fights for them out of his grace, you know, not because of anything that they have done. And then he follows this up with this first exhortation to obey and to be faithful in verses 6 to 8. It says, Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now don't associate with these nations, don't bow down to their gods, to these false idols. Don't serve them. Behold fast to God. Cling to the Lord your God. And what's interesting here is that you know, we're nearing the end of Joshua. It's the end of the book of Joshua. And Joshua's about to die. He's old and well advanced in his years. And he, he wants to remind Israel of, of this commandment to obey, of this covenantal relationship. And the words here are the, the very same things that God spoke to Moses at the very, or God spoke to Joshua at the very beginning of this book. In Joshua 1, 7 to 9, I'll read for you quickly. It says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then it continues on. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then he follows this up with a second reminder in verses, verses 9 to 10. 
the Lord has driven out these great and powerful nations. The only reason one of you is able to rout a thousand is because God fights for you. So again, Joshua is emphasizing the fact that God is fighting for them. And then this time, another exhortation. And with an implicit, or with this consequence of what happens when you reject God, what happens when you reject His blessings in this relationship. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. If you turn away and you ally yourselves with these nations, if you worship their idols, if you associate yourselves with them, you can be sure that they're going to be snares and traps for you. That you're going to perish from this good land. The land that, the good land that the Lord your God has given you. And then he ends with this third reminder. This time reminding them that God is consistent. That God has been faithful in his good promises. That he has been, he has given them this land. But they can be sure that if they disobey, if they go down this route of worshiping these false idols, they can be sure that you know, even the quote-unquote bad promises are going to be fulfilled too. And then he ends with this implicit exhortation in verse 16. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. If you violate this covenant. Now this covenant is basically what this entire chapter is about. This is what Joshua is trying to remind Israel of before he departs. And it goes back to Genesis 12 with Abraham. You know, God spoke to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you this promised land. I'm going to make you to be a blessing to all the nations. And Abraham stepped out in faith and he, and he believed. And then he became a sojourner in this, in this foreign land. Now this word covenant is a very theological term. It's got a lot of theological baggage. It's very easy to misunderstand. There's a lot of nuances about it. And some of you may know that we had this old covenant between God and Abraham, between God and Israel. And then we had this new covenant between God and us, and believers, Christians. And I'm here to say that there's a lot of similarities between both the Old and the New Covenant. And for example, Israel's relationship with God is covenantal, not contractual. In the same way that our relationship with God is covenantal and not contractual. And this speaks to both the Old and the New Covenant. It's not con- contractual in the same sense that you saw between Sheldon and Amy or between Jessica Beale and Justin Timberlake. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of similar, similar, similarities. I mean, both are binding relationships. But there's a lot of differences, too. With a contract, there's negotiation. It's between two or more parties, and they sit down, and they talk about the different numbers and how long the contract is. You know, I was listening to sports radio recently, and I was listening about Dustin Pedroia's contract with the Red Sox. You know, every day there would be updates on you know, how long the contract would be and how much it would be worth. But with the covenant, it's formulated by God alone. It's not between two equal parties. God is not equal to man. God does not sit down with some representative of mankind and then he says, you know, here, have a seat. You know, what do you have to offer? They talk, they deliberate, and then over some time, he, he writes down a number on a piece of paper and places it face down and pushes it across the table. It's not like that at all. With the contract, it also focuses on what each party will do. 
know, just like in the video clip, it was all about what each party will do. You know, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, how much weight you should gain, how much weight you should lose. It's not focused on what each party will be. It's not focused on, you know, the emphasis is not on that relationship between these two people. The trust is placed differently too. With a, with a contract, the trust is placed in the contract itself. And there's always an exit strategy with a contract. There's always a way to, to compensate yourself for some loss. You know, if JT cheats on Jessica, Jessica is awarded $500,000. But with a covenant, the trust is placed in the other party. Now, even when, even when Israel forsakes God, even when Israel rejects God, and we see this through the course of the history of Israel, God doesn't just collect his compensation and then peace out. He still chases after Israel. So when we look at this text, when we look at Joshua 23, we don't want to see it as some sort of contract, but a covenant. For a contract is selfish, but a covenant is self-giving. A covenant is that phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's no forsaking. Second, this covenant, both the old and the new, it's founded upon grace. Now, it's very easy to see that the New Testament is a God of grace, and sometimes we see the Old Testament as a God of wrath. But there's a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. There's grace. Grace in both the Old and the New. And then there's this call for reciprocation, for obedience. And grace is throughout the entire Old Testament. We see this with the God who fights for Israel. We see this with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Abraham was a good guy. He was a, he was a great guy. But there was never any obligation on God's part to promise him anything. But this covenant was initiated by God. And that's why Abraham Joshua Heschel calls it, we have this notion of a chosen people and not a chosen God. A chosen people, but not a chosen God. You see that God chooses Israel and God chooses us, not the other way around. And so we have this covenant, not a contract. We have this covenant founded on grace. And so we must obey. That is, the proper reciprocation is obedience. Obedience out of love, our covenantal commitment to God, Israel's covenantal commitment to God. The heart of their duties as his people. The most natural, the complementary response to God's faithful acts. This obedience is a means to an end. And that end is that Israel should have this close and loving relationship with God. And how do we know this? In Joshua 23, you might have picked this up when Jason was reading. This phrase, the Lord your God, was repeated numerous times. 12 to 13, depending on your translation. Given that there's only 16 verses in this, in this passage, it's a huge proportion. You know, why is Joshua using this phrase, the Lord your God? Because he's emphasizing the fact that they, Israel has this covenantal relationship with God. And he's reminding them to obey so that they can continue this loving relationship with God. Now for this passage, it's very easy to, to look at this and you see these threats. You see the consequences of your disobedience, of the ramifications of Israel's disobedience, and you're trying to make sense of, of that and reconcile that with, with this 
end goal of having a close and relation, uh, loving relationship with God through obedience. It shouldn't be that foreign to us, though. You know, one commentator called it the, the carrot and sticks metaphor. You know, people are motivated by positive motivations and negative motivations. And positive motivations, in this case, being the love for God. You know, obey Him because He has shown grace to you because you love Him. The carrot. But sometimes carrots, sometimes positive motivations are not enough. Sometimes people are stubborn. And that's where we have the negative motivation, the stick, the threat of punishments, the threat of, of what happens when you disobey, the punishment. And it should be familiar to some of us who have parents who love us. You know, I know for myself, you know, when I was younger, I hated vegetables. And I still do now, but that's for another illustration. But for now, you know, when I was younger, I hated vegetables. And my parents would try to motivate me to eat my vegetables. You know, you're a growing boy. You need to get bigger and, and grow taller. And, and you need this nutrition. And that was a positive motivation, the knowledge that vegetables were good for me. But being young, I knew that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough to motivate me to, to eat my vegetables. The carrot was not enough. And so they would use the stick strategy, and literally a stick. They would bring in, uh, and they would place the bowl of vegetables on my left-hand side. And then they would take that huge ro wooden rolling pin that you use to roll dough with, and they would place it on my right-hand side, and they would say, choose one. I mean, obviously, in my mind, I, I knew the vegetables was probably the, the correct choice. Um, <laughs> my, my point is to say that the negative motivation was what got me to, to eat my vegetables. And that didn't discount my parents' love for me. That didn't discount my parents' love for me. In the same way, that doesn't discount God's love for Israel. So I've been talking about covenant, I've been talking about grace, I've been talking about faith and obedience, and what does this all have to do with? You know, covenant, when we talk about covenant, it's, it relates to salvation. Salvation in your relationship with God. And sometimes it's very easy to, to have this very a misunderstanding of, of how salvation works, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. With the Old Testament, we may think that it's works, Works of the law for Israel, which leads to salvation. But what it is really is what we talk about is, is that it always begins with grace. It begins with God's grace. And that leads to works of the law, which leads to salvation. Now some of you may be wondering, you know, where's the faith? Where's the faith for Israel? Where's the faith for, for the Old Testament? Well, the faith is built in because, you see, the law points out what was forbidden to Jews who already stand before God. You can't have the works of the law without the faith. Similarly, for the, the New Testament, we may think sometimes that it's faith alongside works which leads to salvation. We think that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, if we have faith in Jesus Christ and we do good deeds, both of us, both of those things, credits us and gives us the credit enough to enter into heaven. But we see that what it is, is it begins with grace. Just like the Old Testament, it begins with grace, which leads to faith, which leads to salvation, which produces these works, these good deeds, these godly behavior. You turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. 
It says in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And this is where we stop. This is a great you know, Sunday school memory verse. This is where we usually stop. But I think it's important that we continue on to complete Paul's thought in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So these three verses encompass all that we've been talking about. You know, grace, faith, obedience, good works, tra- godly behavior, that sort of transformation. And it's not faith plus works. It's the works don't get us into heaven. For we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. See, the works is, is not the grounds for our salvation. It's not what what gives us credit to enter into heaven. It's not what gets us into heaven. But the works is the goal of the new creation. You see, if we are truly saved, if we have this faith, you know, if we are made new in Jesus Christ, then we should be issuing, we should be bearing fruit, bearing fruit of, of, this, of these good deeds, of this godly behavior. We should be obeying God. And this is a requirement. You know, the God of the new is the God of the old. And what God asks of his people in the Old Testament is, is the same for the New Testament. It begins with grace. And we must reciprocate with obedience. You know, John 14, 15, Jesus in his last discourse puts the idea of the sermon pretty succinctly. It says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 21 it says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Again, Jesus is reiterating, re- reiterating this fact. In verse 23 it says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. What does obedience look like? Well, first off, it means to cling to God, not to other gods. To cling to God, not to other gods. In the same way that Joshua here is is exhorting Israel to hold fast to the Lord their God, to cling to them as they have until now, and not to these other nations. This is obedience. You know, Martin Luther had this very interesting way of looking at Ephesians and how it correlated with the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. You know that commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, he compared that and he equated it with the fact that we are justified by grace and faith alone. Because he said to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. And to have some other God is to have something you love more than God. And it's to find your justification in that thing. And so this commandment to, to have no other gods before you requires... It requires that the man's entire heart and all his confidence be placed in God alone and in no one else. It means to, to cling to him with a heart, with nothing else, than to trust in him entirely. So obedience is, is first of all to cling to God and not to other gods. Second, we've been talking about works. You know, what is works? Works is a general expression of godly behavior in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. 
It's not just good deeds. It's not just, you know, helping the old lady across the street. But it is a radical transformation of your character, of obedience, of exhibiting obedience through godly behavior. And how do we know this? And Because we see that in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is talking about in, in chapters 4 through 6 near the end. He's talking about this sense of obedience, of this godly behavior. In 4.22 it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In 5.1 he continues on, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in chapter 6, he goes on about different types of obedience and what that looks like. So our purpose here today is, is to live out the new covenant. To live out the new covenant. You know, God has been gracious to Israel. He has been gracious to us. We must reciprocate that grace in obedience. You know, if we are truly saved, if we have this faith, this life-transforming faith, let us live out this new covenant in obedience. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people Israel, for being able to learn about this covenantal relationship um, through them, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have shown to them and, and for, um, for making them to be a blessing to all nations so that we may, too, partake in this joy of knowing you. And so we pray, Lord, that, that our lives would be a fragrant and offer, offering and sacrifice to you, Lord, that we would reso- respond in grace, in, in obedience. For we have been made new in Christ Jesus. And we thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.